Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Our observations had taught us to conceive a spectacle exceeding our original expectations, but they had not prepared us for the extent and display of the scene which here burst upon us. An area nearly a mile in circumference was crowded with magnificence and novelty. At least a hundred large umbrellas or canopies, which could shelter thirty persons, were sprung up and down by the bearers with brilliant effect. The superior captains and attendants wore a shanty cloths of extravagant price. These were of incredible size and weight, and thrown over the shoulder exactly like a Roman toga. A small silk fillet generally encircled their temples, and massy gold necklaces intricately wrought suspended Moorish charms. Gold and silver pipes and canes called the eye in every direction. Wolves and ram's heads as large as life, cast in gold, were suspended from their gold-handled swords. So that, Tom Holland, was T.E. Bowditch, who was the first Englishman to leave a written account of the court of the King of Ashanti after his visit in May 1817. And we're in the middle of our great World Cup odyssey, aren't we, through the the countries that have qualified for the tournament in Qatar. Uh, we are talking about the Ashanti kingdom. So this is the episode for Tom. For Ghana. For Ghana. And I will confess right away that I know genuinely nothing at all about this subject. So I'm greatly looking forward to being educated, Tom. Well, you? Um, I'm not going to pretend that I am in any way a specialist in the study of the Ashanti empire either. Actually, ever since I read Dan Morris's book, Heaven's Command, which describes the British expeditions against this extraordinary empire in what is now Ghana, uh, Ashanti land. And I guess the Ashanti are probably up there with the Zulus as the African empire that most impressed the British. Uh, and because the British tended to write the earliest reports, they're most, you know, they're, they're a kind of very vivid record. Today is Ghana. Uh, and as you will know, Ghana is the oldest football association in Africa, 1920. So Ghana is, is the coast is the Gold Coast. Yeah. And so it's a place where ever since the, the arrival of the Portuguese, you have the interface with Europeans. There is this kind of fascinating synergy. And also the forests of what is now Ghana is linked to um, the lands further north. So the Islamic world too. So there's right. this kind of through the early modern period, there is this kind of interface between the European powers on the coast Islamic civilizations to the north and the various peoples who are kind of moving in to what will become Ghana. And of all these people, the Ashanti are by far the most famous. And in terms of building huge empires and constructing cities, the most impressive. So where do the Ashanti come from? Well, the Ashanti themselves have various traditions. 
So one of the traditions is that they fell from the sky. Another tradition is that they emerged from holes in the ground. Okay. And another tradition is that they emerged from a lake called Bazomtwe, which um, uh, James Morris describes as a sinister tree-infested mere which intermittently belched gas and mud from its recesses. Uh, and actually, the tradition is that it's not just the Ashanti who come from um, Lake Bazomtwe, but the entire human race. So right. what you get with those three traditions is the idea that the Ashanti have always been in Ghana, you know, whether they've fallen from the sky, or whether they've emerged from a lake or whether they've emerged from, from yeah. the ground. And actually, one of the things that strikes me reading about the, the Ashanti is the the kind of the trace, the the echoes of Greek or Roman traditions. I mean, obviously, they're completely coincidental, but the Athenians mm -hmm. had this idea that they, what they called autochthonous, that they were sprung from the soil and that this gave them a peculiar hold on the, on the land that they, that they lived in. So that was part of the Ashanti tradition. But there is also a tradition that they came from the, uh, the savannah to the north. And that is obviously what likelier what, than what, the fact that they, they fell from the sky yeah. or that they came from right. the lake, probably. And just to, uh, so the coming from the savannah to the north, can you put us, um, in time? A little bit more specifically. So when are we talking about? Probably over the course of the Middle Ages. Right. That's uh, quite a long period. Yeah. I, I mean, because, because there are no real written records about it. Yeah. The archaeology is difficult because there's rainforest everywhere. So, so right. it, it, it's, it's difficult to, to really say anything more certain than the fact that various peoples, various groupings are migrating into this region and indeed over the whole of, 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 all along the coast, not just into Ghana, yeah. over the course of the Middle Ages. And with the coming of the Portuguese, oh, yeah. you start to get a, a degree of state building because the Portuguese are buyers for slaves and for gold. Right. Yeah, yes. And so a kind of international process of exchange is starting to build yeah. up. And you need structures in place to be able to ship these things to the coast yes, and then to sell them and then to regulate their trade or whatever, I suppose. Exactly. And so by the 17th century, there is this, uh, this people, this empire called the Denkhira, and they are occupying the Gold Coast in Ghana and the kind of region inland. And they are the dominant power. And there, there are various kind of other peoples who are subordinate to them. Uh, and among these people are the people who will become the Ashanti. I'm going to call them the Ashanti throughout, but they only get to be called the Ashanti later on for a reason that we'll come to. Right. So, right. Um, so in the 70, by the 17th century, an Ashanti state is starting to incubate within the broader empire of the Denkhira. And there are all kinds of, of stories told about this process that for anyone familiar with Greek or Roman mythology would be familiar. So they talk about how their state is founded by two twins called Twum and Antwi. Um, and the kind of the echoes of, of Romulus and Remus there yeah. are, you know, suggestive because these are, I guess, kind of primal legends. Um, yeah. There are only so many origin stories that you can construct. But what's clear is that by the 17th century, a bit like the Denkira further south, the people who will become the Ashanti are starting to consolidate. And again, it's, it's basically, I think, because with the introduction of large quantities of iron, it's possible for them too to start clearing, you know, villages. Right. So you start yeah. to get this pa this pattern of very thick jungle and open patches where the soil is kind of very red, and that means that they can start to plant crops. And this is a period yeah. in the 17th century when the produce of the Americas is starting to be introduced, and particularly maize. And so I remember when we um, when we did our episodes on Portugal, 
uh, somebody on Twitter said, uh, I hope you're going to talk about how the Portuguese introduced maize uh, into Africa uh, and how this became the staple crop. And we didn't, did we? But no, we didn't. I did, well, because I didn't. I mean, did you know that? I didn't. No, know that. I didn't. I didn't know that. So this is our opportunity to uh, to make amends for that. Um, but it's it's not. So it's not just maize that's being introduced. It's avocados, tomatoes, pineapples, oranges, all that kind of stuff. They come from, from the America. Americas. Yeah, See, I didn't know that, Tom. Uh, well, this is an education, Dominic. But you will know that, of course, that that the other thing is is the gold and yeah. Hence the Gold Coast. Yeah. So, so, so even if the people who will become the Ashanti are being obliged to uh, to kind of hand gold over to their superiors, to their masters uh, on on the coast, the Denkira, um, they're, they're still getting a bit of it. So, right. the, the fruits of that is starting to percolate back. And basically, by the sixteen seventies, they're kind of on the move, but they're still not really ready to to make a pitch for independence, still less for conquest. So in 1680, they have a king who gets killed in in battle. Yeah. And there's a rather sad entry in a history that was published in Ghana in the 1970s that said he was buried in an area close to the present-day Barclays Bank, but his head was taken away by the Denkira. So that, so that was rather sad. Um, and a kind of reminder of the fact that uh, this is a, a, a very dangerous world where Attempts yeah. at rebellion against imperial overlords are not going to go down well. Although, interestingly, you talked about battles, partly because so much of the area is, is as you said, thick, dense forest. Presumably, these battles are quite small scale by early modern European standards, are they? Um, yes, but as we will see, that tends to change under the Ashanti. Right. Who One of their slogans is that they have teeming thousands. So oh, they are very right. proud of the enormous numbers of warriors that they can call upon um anyway so the guy who's he- who, who's buried in uh, close to barclays bank and whose head yeah. gets taken away he was a guy called um abira yaboa and he has a nephew called ose tutu and he is the guy who is commemorated by the ashanti as the founder right. of their greatness he's so their he, cyrus the great yes and again there are kind of echoes of maybe more biblical legends. Uh, so the story is, is that his mother was barren for many, many years, couldn't couldn't have a child. Um, and then she goes to the shrine of a very powerful river and prays to the God there. And miraculously, she becomes pregnant. So the, you know that, that's a kind of staple of biblical stories yeah. of prophets. So he is given as a hostage to the Denkira. And this is a bit like, I guess, Philip of Macedon going to Thebes. You know, he, yes. he, he's treated quite well. You know, he, he's treated as a prince. He's, mm. he's brought up, or, you know, a bit like, I don't know, barbarians going to the court of Constantinople. He's, he's brought up by the Denkira in their ways. Um, and in fact, he, he ends up as a, a shield bearer to the king. So this is a great honor. And this clearly gives him the chance to study the way that the Denkira fight. So he's studying the Denkira. So way it's very of war. Philip of Macedon, because that's, very, I mean, yes, Philip. Were studied the Thebans, didn't he? Um, and used his knowledge, and uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or say Arminius, the, uh, the 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 German auxiliary who ends up wiping out the three legions. Um, a Varus, a, a Varus. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's a standard kind of imperial technique, and the Denkira are clearly doing it. However, Ose Tutu is a naughty boy, and he gets embroiled in a in a, a sex scandal when oh uh, one of the princesses gets pregnant. There is much to do and he has to he has to run away so he, he he escapes and he's now very much on his uppers because he's you know he's being hunted by the denkira he can't 
go back, he'd take up his princely status. Uh, seems like he's burned his bridges. But then he meets a, a remarkable man called Ocomfo Anokie. So if um, I'll say Tutu is King Arthur, Ocomfo Anokie is Merlin right. or Gandalf. He, Gandalf, he is yeah. a man who has deep, deep command of magic. Uh, and the story is, is that he was born with the white tail of a cow in one hand and totem poles in the other. And these are signs of his remarkable destiny. And it, it probably won't learn, surprise you to learn that his uh, mother, who had a peculiarly coloured hand, had been executed by the king of Denkira as a witch. She had a peculiarly coloured hand. That, that's the story. That's the story. Yes. What was the colour? Not sure. Um, I'm Maybe a birthmark on her hand. Oh, you and your withering scepticism. <laughs> okay, fine. I'll just believe it. I, she had a green hand. Let's crack on. <laughs> so with the backing of this guy, with his command of, of deep magic, Osei Tutu is able to start thinking, well, I'm going to get my own back on the Denkira, and I'm not only going to get my own back, I'm going to take them over. And he recognizes that to do that, he has to forge a single people out of the many different kind of tribal entities, different villages, different groupings that are scattered over, over the, uh, the forest. And each grouping, the, the, the head of each grouping, brilliantly, the marker of his power is a stool. Okay. They're absolute masters of uh, woodwork. In fact, their craftsmen are, are, are sensational. And so the stools are often right. beautifully, you know, the, the, the more beautiful the stool, the more prestigious uh, you are. But um, basically, there can be only one. And so um, a confo inocchiae burns all the stools of all the, uh, you know, all the various tribal leaders. He, he incinerates them as a marker that there can be only one. And then a spectacular miracle. There are sacrifices are performed and the blood steams up to the sky. Sacrifices of animals, presumably. Well, possibly or possibly not. We'll come to that later. Okay. Yeah. The drums quicken and out of the blood of the sacrifices, a black cloud seems to, to gather and it's not immediately obvious to people. And then, you know, only a few kind of pointing out saying, what's this cloud? And then it gets thicker and thicker and thicker, blacker than a thundercloud. And then thunder starts to rumble from out of it. And then uh, thick white dust emerges from the cloud and then falling very, very slowly, turning like a, a seed in, in a breeze, you know, dropping from a tree. Do you know what descended? What, what, what appeared? Is it a stool? It is a stool, Dominic. And it glints with gold. And yet it's not entirely made of gold. So it's an extraordinary thing because below the gold, it is, there is exquisitely, fabulously carved wood. And it fell slow, you know, like, like this kind of seed drops, it drops, it yeah. drops. And then do, do you know into whose lap it falls? The King Arthur. Yeah, Ose Tutu falls into his lap. And this is a sign. And there's, well, um, there's no doubt that this happened, right, Tom? I mean, this absolutely happened. This absolutely happened, uh, as also is the next thing that happened, because Akumfo Nokia takes the stool and he puts it down. And yeah. then he does what I think anyone in this situation would do. <laughs> which is to get an albino <laughs> to sit on it. Obviously, obviously. And the albino man just vanishes. He just goes like that and he's, he's gone. And he vanished. He vanishes. He sat on the stool and vanished. Yes. And the reason for this is that um, he's been swallowed up by the stool and has given the stool his soul. 
So now the stool has a soul. Of the, of the albino. Yeah. It's a bit like the wishing chair in Enid Blyton. That had a soul. This is now the soul of this new people that has been forged of the people of by the nation. this. Yeah. yeah. And so the stool is the, the golden stool. It's called the, the, the Sika Dua Coffee, the golden stool created on a Friday. And so this is now the great, it's more than an emblem because it, it has yeah. this living soul. Uh, and from that point on, Dominic, no albino man was ever put to death in the Ashanti Empire. Oh, that's a nice, so well, that's a nice touch. Yeah. Um, so, so they, they've got the, they've got the, uh, the golden stool created on a Friday now. So that's tremendous, yeah. but now they need a capital. Uh, and right. so Tutu does this in a very sensible way. He, he plants a tree in three locations and he waits to see which one is going to grow the fastest. And yeah. the tree that grows the fastest is a place that comes to be called Kumase. And so this becomes the capital. And right. this is the place that Bowditch will come, who described it in the, uh, yeah. the passage that you first read. So they've got the stool. Now they've got the capital. Now they need an army. And what happens next is very, very Spartan. So if, if I say Tutu is a bit like King Arthur, he's also a bit like Lycurgus, the guy who uh, establishes the Spartan constitution and, and right. turns them into a kind of great war machine. What he does is to drill them and to make them kind of professional. Their entire focus is going to be war. And because they're drilled, they can kind of maneuver. And a bit again, a bit like the Spartans, a bit like the, the Zulu, they've very, very adept at holding a center and then kind of like the, the, um, the Zulu's called the bull horns, kind of curling round and, and flanking. Enveloping their opponents, yeah. And um, the Ashanti compare their, uh, their, their army to a porcupine it's because, you know, it's kind of the, bristling, the spike, with, spears the bristling and, yeah. with spears and then, but also with guns because they are, you know, it's not just spears, it's absolutely guns. They're practicing with guns. They're sourcing guns from the coast. I was about to say, are they trading directly with the Portuguese as well, or do they have to go through their imperial overlords for that? It's not entirely clear. I'm not, in, I, right. as I say, this is, uh, yeah, I'm not entirely on top of the uh, the trade mechanics of this, and I'm not entirely on top of exactly when it is that um, the, uh, the this war machine becomes fully equipped with with uh, rifles. But okay. um, basically, Dominic, the key is it's very very frightening and very very menacing. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll bear that in mind. Essentially. The point comes where they they think we're ready to to take on the Denkiera and and to throw yeah. the Denkieran yoke off. But to begin with, I'm afraid to say it goes very badly for them. Fortunately, however, Nokia is able to step in and and do his magic stuff. So um, That's good. so he uses his magic to secure the defection of various Denkierian generals. So they come over with their their troops. Um, yeah. And the other thing that he does is very cool is that um, he turns himself into a vulture. And he scatters the the body parts of one of the uh, one of one of their own generals who's fallen in battle. Um, uh, scatters it all over the enemy. Is, <laughs> oh my god! That which would is be a, very off putting. Yeah, it is off putting, uh, and it's not good for that for the Denkiran morale at all. Um, and even more impressively, um, he he shits in the eye of the enemy general <laughs> in his capacity as a vulture. Yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, you wouldn't. <laughs> and so the the net effect of this yes. is that at a place called Feasi, they win a tremendous victory. They they basically wipe out the, the Denkira. And the, the Denkiran king, he was so confident of victory that he wasn't even in the battle. And he was off playing a, a kind of um, a kind of chess uh, a bit further back. <laughs> right. And so right. he gets captured red-handed. Right. Uh, and, and he gets brought before uh, I say Tutu and he he behaves very, very well, very bravely. Uh, he, he embraces, willingly embraces death. 
And he says, my crown is lost. My, my empire is lost because of war. And in the Twi language, asha means war and ti apparently means because of. I'm not pretending I in, in any way familiar with the Twi language. If you have any Ghanaian listeners, I, I apologize yeah. for my... Uh, <laughs> How does it compare with your Portuguese, Tom? I think slightly better. I think slightly better. <laughs> but you put, so you put uh, Asha and Anti together, and you get oh. Ashanti. Uh, so yeah. Ashanti literally means because of war. So it's it's an empire. Yeah. The very name of it is expressive of uh, yeah. military power. And so he the 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 Denkian king dies, saying, "I die because because, because of, of war. war." You know, Ashanti. So the king gets his head chopped off. And then he gets his body parts get divided up and they get kind of scattered all over the, uh, the, the this emergent empire. Uh, and again, right. this is strong stuff. So the Ashanti are born. The Ashanti basically. are born. And basically, as the Denkirans had, had ruled the people who become the Ashanti, so the, now the Ashanti are, are ruling the Denkirans. And this gives them direct access to the coast. Yep. Uh, and so this is all entirely good news. Excellent. And I'd like to think there's, there are more delights coming in the second half. Are there? lots yes brilliant lots great all right we'll see you after the break bye-bye i'm anthony scaramucci former white house director of communications and wall street financier and i'm katty k u.s special correspondent for bbc studios i've been covering american politics for almost three decades welcome to the rest is politics u.s brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people (laughs) will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking about the Ashanti. And Tom, the Ashanti have been born because of war. What happens next? They've got their empire. Uh, presumably it's strength to strength, is it? Yeah. They just, they, because their army is so efficient, much more efficient than the Denkiran army had been. And so that now they've got the preponderance, they can just basically swallow everyone else up. Um, and yeah. so they, they, they swallow up more and more peoples, more and more kingdoms, and they establish this, this huge empire. 
uh, across much of what is now Ghana. Uh, so can you give us any dates? Yeah, so um, we're now into the 18th all... century. We're into the 18th century now. I would guess we're talking 1730s, something like that. So so to give that a bit of context um, for British listeners, so this is the, the period of the, the ascendancy of Sir Robert Walpole, the first prime minister, uh, the Industrial Revolution, I suppose. And meanwhile, in what is now Ghana, the Ashanti Empire is kind of strengthening its, its grip. That's basically the picture, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, suppose, I mean, I suppose it, it, it's the period out in the broader world when, when the British are starting to come to power. Uh, and this is yeah. quite, going to be quite an important part of the story because the British, along with the French, the Dutch, the Portuguese, they all have kind of trading ports, ports along the, uh, along the Gold Coast. But it's over the course of the 18th century that the British start to monopolize that. So the other yeah. European powers start to fade away. So by the, by the night, by the 19th century, it's basically under British control. And, and that's going to be, you know, a, a very important part of the, of the story later on. But because that those European powers are there, the Ashanti can now profit directly from the, the, the trade in gold and the trade in slaves. Um, so it's gold and slaves. And that's the, the underpinning of their power. Um, and it makes them very, very rich. And it enables them to fashion the the incredibly sophisticated society that uh, Bowditch sees when he he comes at the beginning of the night. Right, the century. umbrellas, the wolf's head. Yeah, all and that so stuff. the umbrellas and all that kind of stuff. The Ashanti kings employ Muslims from the north to kind of run their bureaucracy because they're li- they're obviously literate. Yeah, but they themselves are not interested in that, and so they need markers of status because this is a, actually a very sophisticated political system. Um, and it's quite an oppressive system. So there are, you know, there are spy. The kings employ spies everywhere. They're kind of constantly checking, reporting back to the, the king what's going on. But because it's non-literate, it's it's dependent on visual markers of status, right? Uh, yeah. And and so this is very important. And so all the kind of you know the the staffs, the uh, the swords, the gold pectorals, all that kind of stuff. You know, these just these aren't randomly chosen. They are yeah. as significant as similar such things would be in, say, in a Byzantine court. So, this is the uh, extraordinary civilization that Bowditch and, and the British come across in the in the early nineteenth century. And um, when you say come across, Tom, just a quick question: So, the Europeans are meeting the Ashanti on the coast. The the, the Ashanti are. control that trade, but the Europeans have not yet really penetrated into the interior. Is that right? The, exactly, by and large. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's very, you know, it's dense, dense forest. Yeah. And the Ashanti are, are very intimidating. So it's it's a kind of dangerous thing to do. But by 1820, the first British consul arrives in Kumasi. So, you know, the British Empire is starting to, to slightly spread its wings. Yes. And the, the, the British have a very ambivalent attitude towards the Ashanti. Because on the one hand, they find it hugely, hugely impressive, as you could tell from the passage of Bowditch's account that you read. Yeah. So, that, so Kumasi is a very well-planned capital. It's very clean. Its streets are very spacious. British observers are hugely impressed by the toilets, which they say every house has. They're kind of flushed out daily right. with, with boiling water. Uh, there's a daily litter collection. It's, you know, it's very impressive. And there are buildings in Kumasi of a kind that, that Europeans would be impressed by. So there's a palace built of stone that was built in 1822. The doorways, the windows are sheathed in gold. So it's it's a kind of really very, very, very impressive. The laws are, are quite exacting. So uh, no one is allowed to whistle. 
No one's allowed to smoke a pipe. And do you know the penalty for sneezing? Death. Death. Yeah. Death. For sneezing. So, yeah. So it's it's no nonsense, robust, sensible policies. Yeah. Law and order. The British Observer is very impressed with the cleanliness of the upper classes. So well, they, they're not sneezing. I mean, for, for among other things, <laughs> and every morning they're washing. They're washing themselves with soap and water, and they are perpetually cleaning their teeth. And this is right. seen as splendid. But the the, yeah. the the masses, the British, complain are very dirty. But I mean, the British are obviously in no position to criticise because you could say <laughs> right. exactly the same of, yes. of Britain. <laughs> so I mentioned the the Denkir and King playing a a game like chess, yeah. where he gets captured. Yeah. Um, and this is a game called Awari, and very popular, I gather, across Central Africa, uh, particularly associated with the, the Ashanti, who are very, very good at it. Um, they're spectacularly good at working gold, spectacularly good at, at, at working wood, as we see with mm-hmm. the, all the various yes. stools and so on. And their architecture is really very, very impressive. The British are inclined to see Africans as savages, as, mm-hmm. as people who have no sense of civilization. You know, they they cannot kind of project that stereotype onto the Ashanti. The Ashanti are clearly right. hugely yeah. sophisticated, culturally adept people. However, yeah. there are also ways in which the British find the Ashanti not just off-putting, I think, but alarming. So you talked about slavery. There is a lot of slavery. And by the, the 1820s, this is the age of abolitionism in Britain. Um, of course. The Royal yes. Navy is starting to patrol and try and get rid of slavery. And British hostility to the slave trade is obviously not good news for the Ashanti. So that's um, that's a source of, of tension. They're also very, very keen on conquering people. And again, the British, with a hilarious display of hypocrisy, <laughs> <laughs> disapprove of this. They feel that the Ashanti are altogether too imperial. Right. Um, and there is also the issue of human sacrifice. So you you, you asked about this earlier, yeah, uh, yeah. And I'm aware from you know having read about say the uh, the Aztecs, the Mexica, that yeah, that narratives that Europeans have received about human yes can be very loaded, can't they? Uh, can and- be very loaded, and I, I don't know enough about the anthropology of this to say, but but it does seem from the books that I've been reading about this or. The earliest, you know, all of them, some of them were kind of written in the 1890s, right the way up to the 1980s. So I don't know what the latest thinking on this. So if there are the people who can correct me on this, I'd be interested to hear it. But they're basically human sacrifice kind of lies at the heart of the Ashanti state, because when they're about to go to war uh, with the Denkira, so uh, under Setutu, large numbers of of, uh, of the warriors volunteer themselves to be sacrificed in order to guarantee victory, it is said. Uh, and, and, and it's okay. this kind of offering of blood that fertilizes yeah. the, the greatness of the well, Ashanti Empire. The, the, the albino bloke, I mean, presumably that's some folk memory of a sacrifice performed perhaps, at the stool or something. Perha- yeah. Perhaps. And when kings die, there are a lot of slaves get kind of immolated, rather like the, uh, the kind of Viking ship burial assumption yeah. that, uh, that kings should not go into the afterlife without a great train of slaves to follow them. So uh, slaves and criminals, they all get butchered. There is scope there for the British to feel uh, morally superior. And I think throughout the 19th century, that is always a key motor for British imperial expansion. Obviously, there's greed. There's a desire to Mm. kind of seize control of trade routes. But there is also this kind of sense of moral superiority that is a kind of rocket fuel for for imperial right. expansion. So the sort of counter, I mean, the example is David Livingston, most famously, isn't yeah. it? Um, yeah. 
So it's sort of people, even if even if we might regard it now as hypocritical, they at the time want to believe in a civilizing mission. I suppose well, that's that's true, isn't it? I mean, yes, it's not. I mean, they don't regard it themselves as as pure hypocrisy, do they? Well, no, they don't regard it as hypocrisy. They regard slavery as an evil, and that they see it as their mission to stamp it out. Yeah, and that's definitely. Uh, no, I mean, it's not just hypocrisy. I mean, it's not just yeah. a, a kind of cover. They 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 passionately believe it. Um, and an example of this is a man called Sir Charles McCarthy, who is the governor of the uh, the British territories along the the Gold Coast. Um, and he he I mean, he's an interesting. So he's actually Franco Irish. So he's the I think his father was um, a, a French emigre from the Russian Revolution, and his mother okay. Dominic was from Cork. So. Ah. Um, very good, very, very good stock there. And he's a very, very keen abolitionist. He he corresponds with Wilberforce. He, he he's very into all of that, um, and he feels that what the Ashanti are getting up to is very poor form. And so, in um, 1823, he launches yeah. an expedition against them, but he doesn't take as many people as he should because he's complacent and overconfident. And at a place called Nasamankau, I hope I pronounced that right, he uh, he he gets ambushed. And yeah. his head gets chopped off, uh, and his skull gets taken to uh, Kamasi, and it's lined with gold, and it's used as a drinking cup. Wow, it so often happens in history, doesn't it? I mean, I'm thinking about all kinds of Bulgars, and you know, it's very Pechenegg behaviour. Very Pechenegg. Um, <laughs> yes, it's very, 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 very Pechenegg behaviour. So, um, so that hasn't gone well, and but but then it's the Ashanti's turn to to underestimate the British because they then attack the Gold Coast, wanting to wipe get rid of the, the, the Europeans altogether so that they can control the whole trade. Um, yeah. And uh, the British managed to stave off the attack with the help of the Denkira. So the Denkira. The so there's a kind of tug of war now the, between the British and the, the Ashanti over who is going to be the preponderant imperial power. And the Denkira have yeah. decided that they'd rather side with the British than with, with the Ashanti. Um, and so by 1826, the British are able to um, basically to force the Ashanti to a score draw. And they do this with the help of Congreve rockets, which oh um, right, yeah, which are now kind of in their heyday, uh, yes. and nothing that the Ashanti have seen before. And so they they establish a, a river is kind of established as the uh, the markers between the two empires. Um, and in eighteen thirty one, that 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 is confirmed as the border. And then over the course of the nineteenth century, it's trade and war. So the British do start to supply the Ashanti with the kind of the appurtenances of industrial civilization and right. because the ashanti are status obsessed all these appurtenances take on tremendous kind of significance they'll even have carriages there are no horses but they'll get people to kind of draw them right and the, yeah. there's, a, there's a, a british observer who who describes going into the uh, the stone palace and, and having a look and saying that it's a bit like a gentleman's club that there are you know copies of the the times kind of scattered around and all <laughs> that seems so strange yeah, it, yes so so it's a kind of curious mix but at the same time that trade is going on wars are being fought right and over the course of the 19th century there are actually four more wars and it's the last three that are really devastating for the ashanti because by this point britain is is at its imperial industrial heyday yes. and really the balance of power has 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 shifted so dramatically in the favour of the British. And the Ashanti don't really understand this. They don't really appreciate this because the, I think the Ashanti see the British as, as both perfidious and cowardly. And the British see the, the Ashanti as kind of just terrifying savages who need to be tamed. And neither characterization is a fair one. 
Right. Yeah. But by 1870, so into 1872, the, the Ashanti are still doing this kind of, oh, let's go off and raid the Gold Coast and see if we can, you know, conquer it. And and this is a foolish thing to be doing in 1872. And so they, they abortive attack, they get beaten off and they take some, they steal some missionaries and take them off. And the, yeah. and the guy who is in charge of reprisals is a man called Sir Garnet Wolseley. I mean, an enormously Victorian general. I mean, the, the essence of yeah. a Victorian general, the moustache, the ramrod back. Yeah. Uh, so Garnet Wolseley, I mean, an absolutely towering figure in, in Victorian popular culture. And actually, Tom, you know, Henry Morton Stanley. Um, as in Dr. Livingston. As in Dr. Livingston. He covered the third Anglo-Ashanti war as a war correspondent. So I suppose it's the 1870s. And by that time, you know, Britain has really, imperialism has become kind of pop culture in a way. It has. And so the whole thing is done as a, a, as a kind of exemplary, it, it, it's like a story. And yeah, and Woolsey is aware the whole way through that the eyes of Britain are upon him. And so he is kind of behaving like the hero of, of an exemplary military tale. So he he sends an ultimatum to the Ashanti by traction engine. A traction engine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a tremendous thing. And the Ashanti are hugely unimpressed by it, it has to be said. And they reject the ultimatum. And so uh, Wolsey prepares for battle. And in um, in James Morris's accounts of this war, he, he has my favorite ever footnote. So he says, Sir Garnet was quite certain of victory, but was resigned to the possibility of casualties, soldiers being made to die in action. And oh, Sir Garnet wrote, how fortunate they are who do so. Oh to, which, to which Morris has the, attaches this footnote. In the event, only 18 had the good luck to be killed. The, the 55 enjoyed the consolation of dying from disease. So, oh God. so it's, it's um, it, and as that implies, it's a rout. Um, yeah. The, 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 the king uh, flees Kamasi, uh, his nobleman flee it. Wolseley enters the city and, you know, is hugely impressed by it. Very, very struck by the sophistication of the architecture, the, you know, the cleanliness of the streets, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. However, there is also a lot that he is appalled by and the, there's a, a brilliant account. So I will, I will read um, some of the, uh, the descriptions of what he found. So he found, uh, it is reported, the great death drum decorated with human skulls and thigh bones. The stools that had belonged to the king's ancestors stood near it. And then outside the palace, this account claims uh, another spot that was visited was the Death Grove, a gruesome hollow in the center of a clump of trees and tall reeds into which the bodies of the victims of human sacrifice were thrown. It was now nearly filled with their remains. Uh, so, so some people argue very bitterly about this now, don't they? They Cause, do. Because some, yes, some people say, well, this gives the lie to the idea that the British were just evil militaristic bullies and actually the ashanti weren't you know they weren't kindly social workers and uh and and we shouldn't present this in sort of um moralistic good and evil terms in which the british are the bad guys because they're an imperialist and then other people say oh but these accounts of the ashanti are you know are loaded with uh with prejudice and actually the this is all nonsense and the british were making all this stuff up is there any i don't think they do have any sense of whether Right. I don't know. Maybe they are. I mean, as I say, I, I said earlier, I'm, I'm not aware of the latest yeah. academic thinking on this, but these are two empires and yeah. empires are yeah. founded on violence. Um, yes. And, you know, the British are, are, are more effective in their violence, but the Ashanti definitely, you know, I mean, the whole, you know, they wouldn't have this empire unless they were very violent yeah. and, and intimidating. 
Uh, it's, yeah. you know, that's the way empires are. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Woolsey is, a, is appalled by, I mean, he certainly, he, he is sufficiently appalled by what he finds there to blow it all up. So yeah. he lays depth charges and then he retreats and the whole thing gets blown up. So, I mean, maybe it's just a random act of vandalism. I, w- I would have thought it's unlikely. I mean, it is definitely vandalism, but I wouldn't thought he'd do it just for the fun of it. Right. Maybe he did. I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm very open to being corrected on this by people who know more. I mean, the truth, me. I suppose, uh, the truth is when it's, this is absolutely one of those stories, isn't it? One of these stories of 19th century imperialism that people look at it through tinted spectacles that reflect their own political prejudices. Well, I, th- I mean, I think there's a case for saying that perhaps, uh, you know, I, I, t- I talked about how the, the, the British and the Chanty don't really understand each other. But on another level, you might say, actually, perhaps they, they, they understand each other better than we are qualified to do now. Because we are so yeah. instinctively anti-imperial, you know, Woolsey yeah. admires the Ashanti as an imperial people. He admires their discipline. He admires their their courage. He admires their character. He recognises them, you know, rather like the British recognise the Zulus, as worthy adversaries. But he yeah. is also sufficiently self-confident in his own morality and in the morality of the empire that he represents, for it never to cross his mind that blowing up. You know the yeah the the sacred capital of 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 a people might in any way <laughs> perhaps be kind of echoing the very behaviour that he's condemning. Right. Yes. So there are two more wars. Eighteen ninety six. The king, they the British grab him, they depose him, and they remove him to the Seychelles. Uh, this is and Baden calls- Powell is involved in that war. Correct. Isn't he? So this is this is and this expedition is led by Robert Baden Powell, who will go on to found the Scouts. Yeah. Uh, so he removes the king, who's a man called Prempe, and so he goes off to the Seychelles. You know, the worst places to be. I was about to say, people pay very good money for that these days. But then, Dominic, in um, uh, 1900, yeah, you have the War of the Golden Stool. So our old friend, the Golden Stool, is still very much on the scene. Very much on the scene. The Golden Stool, and does it end with the Golden Stool? Is that basically the yes? The, it does. The it does because because the um, the British governor of the Gold Coast goes to Kamasi, and he's offended by. You know, he sees it as a kind of a, a superstitious totem and he's offended by it. And he says, what must I do to the man, whoever he is, who has failed to give to the queen, who is the paramount power in the country, the stool to which she is entitled? Where is the golden stool? Why am I not sitting on the golden stool at this moment? I am the representative of the paramount power in this country. Why have you relegated me to this chair? Why did you not take the opportunity of my coming to Kamasi to bring the golden stool and give it to me to sit upon? This is absolutely mind-boggling story. Let me get this right. The British representative demanded yeah. to sit on the golden stool. They said no, presumably. Yes. Well, because nobody sits on the golden stool. Nobody, you know, the king, the, the, the shanty king doesn't sit on the golden stool. You know, the British governor is coming and saying, I want to sit on the stool. It's terrible. You can't do that. And that triggered a genuine war in which lots Triggers of people a genuine died. war. Yes. Well, because they're incredibly offended. I mean, it's the most offensive thing you could possibly do. Did, did the albino guy die in vain? <laughs> Didn't die so some British ass could sit on. So, yeah. So, so, Tom, I mean, yet again, I can see both sides in this story. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm just looking at it now. I've, I've just got um, the Bodleian website up here. Thousands of people died. 3,000 people or something. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And and large numbers of the Ashanti elite, they, they get rounded up and taken off the Seychelles as well. Uh, and the golden stool is hidden. So the British don't get their hands on it and kind of ship it off to the British Museum or whatever, so, you know. Right. Yeah. Is what they're obviously itching to do. Yes. Yeah. 
So in the 1920s, it's found by um, Ashanti workmen who, instead of showing it the respect that they should do, they strip it of its gold. And oh, this causes, right. ob- I mean, you know, fury. So there's yeah. demands that they be put to death. But by this point, the British have, have learned their lesson. They understand, you know, that they're dealing with something, say, dare I say, sacral. And so they don't consent to have the uh, Ashanti put to death, the, yeah. the workmen who've, who've, who've stolen it, but they have sent them into exile. And they, they issue a formal promise to respect the stool. And they, and they do. Crikey. And in, uh, in 1933, uh, Prempe II, mm-hmm. is, uh, he's been elected as king a couple of years earlier. He returns from the Seychelles and he becomes king in the traditional ritual in which the golden stool plays the starring role. But he also becomes the leader of a Boy Scout troop. And so there, perhaps, you have a moment where you see the, uh, the fusion yeah. The integration of these two great empires, these two sacred traditions, meeting and and, and mixing. And um, to this day, there is an Ashanti king, constitutional monarch. So uh, the, the the Ashanti the Ashanti kingdom I did still not has know that. Yeah. So it's 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 ongoing. I think it's a you know it's um it's a remarkable story. Oh my word! I've just looked him up. Otemfuo Nana Osetutu the second. Yeah. So, so he's, he's named after the founder of the. Uh, yeah. He's a yeah. he's a Freemason. Tom. Oh, I didn't he's know that. Oh, that's, of, that's he's the sword bearer of the United Grand Lodge of England. No, I mean these are all sorts of there's all sorts of things going on here, aren't there? I mean there's Boy Scouts, Freemasons, yeah, Golden Stools, yeah. So Golly. I think, yeah, it's all going on. It is all going on. <laughs> it's it's very Anglo Ashanti. His jewels were stolen from a hotel in Oslo. I'm just reading bits of the internet. Now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that. But on the subject of kind of Anglo um, Ashanti fusion. I, I'm yeah. sure that this is also why the Ghanaian uh, Football Association is so old. So 1920, yeah. when the Golden Stool was was recaptured, was rediscovered. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, I, I hope you've enjoyed that. So interesting. So interesting. And uh, and as you know, let's be honest, we're not Ashanti experts by any means, but it's a, it's a classic <laughs> example, <laughs> isn't it? Of, um, <laughs> but it's a classic example of those historical blind spots that people have because, you know, sub-Saharan African history pre-colonialism is so little known outside Africa, isn't it? Well, it's a lack of written evidence. Lack of written sources, uh, Which yeah. is basically, I guess, why, you know, it's only in the early modern period when you start to get European accounts that you you have some sense of, of these yeah. extraordinary states that are presumably emerging all the time. But we just don't know about them. Fascinating. Well, thank you, Tom. As a great man would put it, that was an absolute tour de force. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Um, uh, no, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. And as we always say, the beauty of this series is we get to do um, subjects that wouldn't necessarily have occurred to us trapped in our very Anglo-Saxon kind of mindset. So it's fun to do genuinely global history, Tom. Genuinely global so, history, Dominic. Yes. We have all kinds of treats to come. So thanks again to Tom and bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.